You know, if you've been with us in our study of the book of Romans, that Paul has put pen to parchment as he's in the city of Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. And he's writing to the Christians that are in the city of Rome. He'd never been there. But he said that I've heard of your faith. And, and it's my desire to come to you, but I'm hindered at this time. And he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. And then he gives the wonderful theme of, of the book of Romans that is before us. And you know it in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then what does Paul do? He then tells us we have need of the gospel. That we all stand guilty before God. That the wrath of God will come upon all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. And who is that? That's us. And Paul will reiterate that once again as we continue here in chapter 5. But here's the thing. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. And in this indictment against mankind that he sums it up in chapter 3 in verse 19. He says that, you know, all the world may become guilty before God. But then the wonderful transition that we saw in verse 21 of chapter 3. And that is that we can be declared righteous only by faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that he died for our sins, he rose again, he's the son of God. He is our hope, salvation. He's our propitiation for sin. And that being declared justified, it's a legal term, which means you are declared righteous before God, doesn't come by our works. It doesn't come by trying to keep the law because we can't keep the law. And as we have discussed in detail, the law was designed to show us that we are guilty. Galatians says to be a schoolmaster, to drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. But rather, justification comes freely by his grace through faith. And that word freely means that you cannot work for it, you cannot purchase it. And as we began to move into chapter 5, this doctrine of justification, at the conclusion of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, using Abraham and David as an example of faith that were justified. And in chapter 5, last week as we conclude, it showing us the blessings and the benefits of being justified. And we saw in verse 1 that we were told we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The separation is over because you believe that Jesus came to this world, was delivered for our offenses, died on the cross of Calvary, was buried and rose again, and he is alive. So now I have forgiveness and justification by his grace through faith. Listen, the war is over. The war is over. You have peace with God. Secondly, we saw the second blessing, benefit of justification. We can rejoice because not only do I have peace with God, but I have access to God. I can come freely, boldly, with confidence and stand before his presence. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can come to the throne of grace in time of need. And then also we read that in Hebrews chapter 10 that we can come with confidence, not our own confidence, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, because he shed his blood for us into the holy of holies that speaks of the presence of God. And we can plant ourselves there and we can fellowship with him. You see, here's the thing to remember. And great is the day when we understand that we were created to have fellowship with him, to know him, to enjoy him, to learn of him. To, to listen to him. 
Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you see, we talk about rest and peace and goodwill and joy this time of year. It only comes by having a close, intimate fellowship and relationship with Jesus Christ. Ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction comes from him. Jesus said, abide in me and you will have joy and that joy will remain. It was David that wrote that in your presence is fullness of joy. And if you're looking for joy... And in any other means this Christmas season, other than Jesus Christ, you won't find true joy. He desires to give you joy unspeakable in your heart and peace that passes understanding. And it all comes by him. And know this, that he wants to have relationship and fellowship with you. You were created for his good pleasures. You were created for his glory. You were created to worship him and to know him. And then thirdly, we saw that verse 2, that we have the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we have the hope of heaven. And no matter what it is that you're going through, and I don't want to make light of perhaps this Christmas season, of the anxiousness you might feel, of the Christmas season or the coming year, whatever's coming to your life, hurt, difficulties and trials and all of that, that we can be thankful as Christians because we have the hope of glory. That is certainty that we're going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I love about going through these last chapters of, of Isaiah speaks a lot about the millennium reign of Jesus Christ <clears throat> when he comes back. We're going to come back with him. Uh, the new heaven and the new, new earth and the new Jerusalem that will spend all eternity with him. That's our future. And that should cause us to rejoice in him and be thankful every single day, no matter what it is that we are going through. Because we have the hope of eternal life, even as Jesus said, that as you believe in me, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, I can't wait till we're all together. Having dinner together at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Singing that new song in Revelation chapter 5, ruling and reigning with him. It's going to be wonderful, and it's true, and it's, it's our future. And so as we look at the benefits, the blessings of justification, we also know that Paul continues to write about that now in verse 3 of chapter 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, <clears throat> knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, or that is endurance. And then verse 4, and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in this chapter we're learning, we can rejoice because we have peace with God, right? We have access to God. We have the hope of glory of God. And then Paul writes that we also glory in tribulations presently. Now I read that and I think, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. How could Paul write, yeah, I rejoice in the things that, that he said so far, yes, I can rejoice in that. Peace with God, access to God, hope of glory of God. But rejoice in tribulations, I'm not so sure. I don't know if I can rejoice in that. And as we look at Paul's life and his ministry, he knew about trials, didn't he? He knew about tribulation. In Acts chapter 20, as he was speaking for the last time to the Ephesian elders, that he would talk about his ministry and the persecution that he went through. And he says, you know what manner of man I was in all seasons, through many trials and tears. And he went through a lot of tears, and he went through a lot of trials in his life. 
And it would be that Paul the Apostle, about that time, right before that, as he would write to the Corinthian believers, he said that, you know, that when we came out of Asia, after that third missionary journey out of Ephesus, that we were pressed beyond measure, that we were despaired even of life. But the God of comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations, has come to comfort us. And he speaks of that comfort. And he speaks of that comfort here in this chapter as well. So we know that Paul knew about tribulations and trials. I mean, he was stoned and left for dead on his first missionary journey. He was beaten in Philippi and thrown in prison. He, he would have cities like in Ephesus that rioted in uh, all around him, wanted to kill him. He would go to Jerusalem after, you know, he meets with the Ephesian elders. He knows that trials await me and sufferings await me and chains await me. But he says that I'm determined to finish my race with joy in the gospel, the calling of ministry that God has given to me. And so he knew about trials. He would go to Jerusalem. Of course, the city rioted against Paul at that time. And as we know that uh, Paul the apostle was taken into protective custody, he went through a legal nightmare for a couple years in Israel, appealed to Caesar, and then they would send him to Rome where he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard for two years, waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He writes about that to the church of Philippi. He says, for me to die is gain, but to stay here is to your advantage. And my chains are not under Rome, but my chains are in Christ and for the furtherance of the gospel. So he knew all about trials and difficulties. I think his middle name was Paul Tribulation Apostle. And if anyone can talk about and knew about tribulations and trials for Christ and enduring them, it was Paul the Apostle. And he says that we can glory in our tribulations. Notice he didn't say if you have tribulations. He says we glory in tribulations. He didn't say glory for tribulations, but in tribulations. And I think that most of us that are here this morning and most of the people that pass through the services, we know that we're going to have tribulations in this life. We live in a fallen world. It's a sinful world. There's suffering. There's death. There's disease. There's sickness that happens. And Jesus said that you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And he would also say that it rains on the just and the unjust. And I think it's a big mistake when Christians embrace teachings from those. You can turn on Christian TV and teacher after teacher will come on and say that, you know, you just need to speak words uh, that are positive, words of faith to get rid of that trial and difficulty. You need to have enough faith. And if you do, you won't have the trials. And speak that prosperity and write books that every day is a Friday, you know, and, and all of this that people are embracing. And God wants you always to be healthy, and God wants you to be wealthy. And we know that in this life, we will have tribulation, all of us. And the Greek word for tribulation speaks of pressure, of crushing, of squeezing. We are pressed beyond measure, is what the apostle writes to the Corinthian church. It speaks of olives being crushed to extract oil, the crushing by an olive press or rocks. And I'm going to speak for myself, but maybe you might feel the same way. God's still working in me in this area of rejoicing in tribulations or difficulties. 
I'm being crushed. I'm being squeezed to glory when I feel the pressure of people in ministry and circumstances and situations. But I want us to look at this very carefully this morning because perhaps you're going through a time like that. This Christmas season, you're feeling the pressure or you're hurting or you're going through a trial. And I pray that it encourages us as we look at this very carefully, as we are learning that we can glory in tribulation because, listen, God is doing something very unique and special in eternity's perspective. He's doing something spiritually in our hearts and in our souls. And we can glory in tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance, or as I said, it might be in your translation, endurance or patience. And that is something that we need to learn. I need to learn it. It is something that God continues to work in me. You see, early in my Christian life and in ministry, when a trial would come, man, I would want to bail after five minutes. I would begin to murmur and complain against the Lord. I would try to fix it, come up with a plan, try to work it out on my own, try to move out my own understanding. I would think that I did something wrong, that God is out to punish me, he's out to get me. And I've come to understand over time that there's no getting me. That all the getting was done on the cross. Jesus took the punishment and the judgment for, for us. Now. As I understand that and that I have peace with God, I can rejoice in that, right? Verse 1 of chapter 5. But I do know this. The trials can come to an individual because he chastens us. You're going in a direction that he doesn't want you to go. You're continuing in sin or carnality because he loves you and he's chastening you, disciplining you, and he desires to do that because we belong to him. Or we can experience trials or tribulations because we do live in a sinful world. We, we go through loss. We can go through trials or tribulations because we are ones that we're experiencing the consequences of sin. We're forgiven, but the consequences are there. And God can allow tribulations to come my way where I think, where did this come from? And why are you allowing this, Lord? And in those times, I have to learn, you have to learn to be patient. I have to endure. Those times where I could not work it out. I didn't have the answer. So, Lord, I'm going to have to wait on you. Lord, I'm being crushed right now. And the Lord says, okay, Jeff, as you go through this trial, you're going to see that I'm going to be working. And you're going to see what it is that I can do. That you can trust me. That I'm your help. And I'm going to grow you. And I'm going to mature you. You see, as we go through those times, we learn to endure, to have patience, to wait. I've mentioned this before, but I think the way our culture is, we don't like to wait, do we? I don't like to wait. My personality is... I'm not a patient person. I want things done right away. I want things solved right away. And we live in a world where we don't like to wait. We have fast food, fast internet, you know, instant communication, instant food, all this stuff. We like to solve things right away. We like the information right away. And we carry that into our spiritual lives. And what we're being told this morning through the scriptures and what we see all throughout the scriptures is that a child of God that we need to learn to wait on him. That we need to endure in the tribulations that we find ourselves in. You know, David was learning that. 
It was David that in that triology of Psalms, Psalms 61, 62, and 63, I love those Psalms because they speak to me. And David is writing those Psalms at a time that he had to wait on the Lord. He's going through difficulty. He just had to leave Jerusalem. His son Absalom usurped the throne away from him. You read 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. Absalom, his son, was bitter towards his father, stole the hearts of Israel, came into Jerusalem, so David had to flee. He fled out into the wilderness. And as he's out there, he's waiting on the Lord. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Are the men of Israel going to come and kill me? Am I ever going to go back to Jerusalem to sit upon the throne? What's going to happen to my son Absalom? And as he's out there in the wilderness, he writes these three Psalms, 61, 62, 63. And he's out there in 61, that Psalm, he says, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer from the ends of the earth. I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He says, Lord, I cry to you. I cry to you from the ends of the earth. I cry out to you. He was at the end of his world. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here that's listening to this message that you feel that you're in a dry, barren place, that you're at the end of your world, and you are to cry out to him and look to him. And David, in that time, he would write Psalm 62, and he writes, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my hope is from him. And he only is my rock and my salvation. He's my defense. I shall not be moved. You see... David writing that my soul waits silently for God alone. Being quiet before the Lord. Sometimes that can imply to some who think that, well, if I am quiet before the Lord, waiting on the Lord, that it's a lack of faith. But it's not. It is showing great faith. It is trusting in the Lord. You see, the enemy, he wants us to, to be tempted to go and and go another direction that the Lord would have you to, to, to move out in fleshly ways, in sinful, carnal ways, worldly ways. The world, the culture comes along and screams at us that you need to do this. And Paul would write in Colossians chapter 2 that if you follow after man's philosophy and empty deceit and that which is not of Christ, you're going to be cheated. And we end up cheating ourselves because we're not willing to wait on the Lord. And we're moving out on our own understanding. And we get impatient. And what happens oftentimes when we get impatient is we stop praying. And we stop reading the word. We stop rejoicing in him. Now last week, if you were with us in our study, we just talked about Abraham, who did not waver at the presence of God, but was fully convinced that what he had promised, he also, God, was able to perform. And we know that Hebrews tells us that Abraham patiently endured and attained the promise. For 25 years, he waited to have that son as he was promised that he would be the father of a great nation. But he endured. He waited patiently. His faith was there knowing that whatever God had promised, he's able to perform. And I pray for us that our faith would be like that. I'm going to wait on you, Lord. In Isaiah chapter 30, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights in Isaiah, that the children of Israel were being 
crushed. They were being squeezed by the Assyrians, the mighty army of the Assyrians coming down. They were brutal. They were cruel. They were absolutely cruel to where they tortured the people. There was no one that could dare stand up against the Assyrians at that time. So what the children of Israel were doing is they were looking to Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world in the Old Testament. Hey, we're going to go to Pharaoh. We're going to try to align with him. We're going to seek his wisdom. We're going to seek his fast Arabian horses. And the Lord coming to the children of Israel tender heartedly is saying to them, woe to you. Because you seek counsel, but not of me. You go to Pharaoh for wisdom. You go looking for the fast Arabian horses for strength, but it's all in vain. His wisdom's not going to help you. Those horses aren't going to give you strength. So he's pleading with the people, come to me, come to me. And as you do come to me, first of all, in quietness shall be your strength. But you would not come, he says. You would not come. Maybe somebody's listening here that you're going through trials and difficulties and you're not going to the Lord. Oftentimes I'll get somebody that comes in my office and they'll say, Pastor Jeff, I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this difficulty. It's been so hard. What do I do? And I said, well, have you prayed about it? No, I haven't prayed about it, but we got to do something. You know, I, I need answers. And I'll say, let's just stop. Let's pray about it. Let's go to the Lord. And, and let's look at his word to see what his Lord has to say concerning your situation or your circumstance. So we're to go to him. And then second of all, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. We go to him. We wait on him. And he goes on and says in Isaiah chapter 30 that blessed are those who wait for him. You see, there's benefit and there's blessing as we wait on the Lord. There, there is help. He promises to be good for those who wait on him. He promises to help those who wait on him. And then as we go to him and we wait on him, thirdly, we will hear from him. He promises that we will hear from him. That he will be a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it, go to the right or go to the left. And that's what David is doing here. And David knew something very important that when in tribulations to go to the Lord. You see, I'm to continue to read the word. I'm continue to seek him, to draw close to him, to trust him, to rest in his love and in his promises, to not isolate myself, to be in fellowship. And, and David, in Psalm 63, he says that you're my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life and my lips shall praise you. He says, I'm out here in this desert. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm crying to you. I'm at the end of my world. I'm going to wait for you because I know my hope is in you. And as I am thirsty and as I'm in this desert experience. My flesh longs for you. My soul thirsts for you because I know that your loving kindness is better than life. Your love is still with me. And David cried out to the Lord. I want to encourage you, don't isolate yourself. It's not a time to withdraw from the Lord when we're going through trials, but to draw close to him. 
And so I know that God is working. He's, he produces perseverance. And when I experience that trial now, I know that I can persevere, endure, be patient, because God is going to work in his timing and according to his will. I glory in tribulation because it produces perseverance, which then, he goes on to say, produces character. And that's speaking of godly character. And it interests me that the way to have godly character is through tribulations. There can be just a spiritual beauty and godly character that is developed and worked in a person when they go through as they endure tribulation. Yesterday was up in Estes Park. Most of you have been there. And in Estes Park, they have galleries. And in the galleries, you can look and they'll have pictures. They'll have photos if it's a photo gallery. They'll have paintings or drawings of bristlecone pines that you find up at the Alpine in the park. And if you've taken Trail Ridge Road, as you get up to Alpine, you see the bristlecone pines. They're all gnarly and twisted, and, and they're not as tall, standing tall as the regular ones, but they're standing because they have a deep root system. And as you look at those twisted gnarly bristlecone pines, you know it's because of the winds up there, right? That the winds that have shaped it and molded those trees. And there's kind of a beauty that is there, so much so that people take pictures of it, they'll draw it, they'll paint it, and then they'll sell it in galleries because people say, that's so neat. You see, it shows me something. I know that when I talk with somebody that has godly character, a spirit of love and gentleness and strength and confidence in God, I know that that is a person, a man or woman of the word. A word that has caused a deep inward strength. The word that has been rooted in their hearts and the winds of adversity that have blown into their lives as they have endured and persevered, trusted God. It produces godly character in them. We say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be a thing of beauty. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to allow the winds of tribulation to come your way and not to blow you away, not to tear you down, not to wipe you out, but to make you stronger that you may get rooted in me, my word, and I'm going to make you strong in a thing of beauty through the cold winds of adversity and tribulations. It will produce over time godly character. Here's the thing about character. I was thinking about this. I was reading some of Daniel, um, and I was reminded going through Daniel. Daniel went through winds of adversity. I mean, we read a story and we think how powerful, you know, the great visions he had and how he was used. But can you imagine being 17 years old and you're taken away from your home? That you're never to see your parents again? Never to come back home? 17 years old until he's an elderly man. He's there in Babylon. He is in the palace of the king of Babylon, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, who's a hothead, who would lop your head off by just speaking the word, throw you in a burning, fiery furnace. 
That wasn't easy for Daniel, but we know that Daniel had godly character. I'm not going to eat the king's meat or drink his wine. He would pray and seek the Lord, and the Lord gave him vision to be able to minister to Nebuchadnezzar and give prophecy. And he is one that continued to pray all through his life. We know that because when it came to the Medes and the Persians that took over, and there Daniel's being used in that kingdom, an elderly man, and he's the right-hand man of Darius, that the other guys didn't like him that were in the kingdom, so they came against his reputation. They, they, they came against him knowing that, that if he prays to his God, that we're going to have him thrown into the den of lions. Because they knew his character. They knew that he would go and pray to the God, the true and living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he ended up getting thrown into the lion's den. Listen, as you are waiting on the Lord and you are praying and seeking the Lord, the world is going to come to you and those around you and say, what do you mean you believe in the Bible? What do you mean the Bible says you're to do this? This is what you're to do. This is what the world says. This is how you get even. This is how you get back. This is how you are to proceed forward. What do you mean you're going to do with the Bible? I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to look to him. He's my salvation. He's my hope. And they may come against your reputation, but listen only you can ruin your character. Only you can ruin your character. So God wants to do a work that we can glory in tribulation because it produces endurance, which then produces character, godly character, which then produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Lord, my hope is in you. I know that as I am patient and wait for you, and you're going to work an inner strength and character in me. I have hope. You are my hope. David knew that. My hope is only from him, he writes. Hope in the backdrop of trials and difficulties. A certainty that you are working, Lord. That your will be done. You're going to do what is best. Your word is true for me. Your promise is true for me. That you're going to finish that work in me that you've begun. And that you are with me, Emmanuel, God is with me. And hope doesn't disappoint. We trust in God, rely on God, and whatever tribulation, crushing time that we're going through, and he will not disappoint. And I can look back, and I can be thankful that in those tribulations that I find myself in, that God was working, that I know that he was doing a wonderful work. He was showing me things that I needed to be shown. I saw his faithfulness. He did a work in me to make me a better husband, a better father, a better pastor. And the King James here says that hope maketh not a shame. I like that. You see, the times that I've been disappointed, ashamed, regretful, is when I lost hope and trust in God. And I began to do my own thing and looked my own understanding and went my own way. And I ended up doing things that were disappointing, regretful, being ashamed of. James, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, you see, when we're in trials, there's a testing of your faith. You want to have a testimony? It's going to come by the testing of your faith. And the testing of your faith, know this, that it will 
Produce patience and let patience have its perfect work that you may be mature, complete in him. God is working to mature, complete you, to use you, that his glory may be seen in us broken vessels as he would write in 2 Corinthians. Hope is the absolute certainty that God is at work in my life, working in that trial that I face. And so Paul continues telling us of the benefits and the uh, being justified in chapter 5. Let's move on to verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that here the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, says that Christ died for the ungodly. And who might that be? That's all of us. Paul's made that very clear, hasn't he? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Paul now describing the great love that God has for us, his love to the undeserving, the unworthy, those without strength, for the ungodly. God demonstrated his own love towards us or proved his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was more than God speaking about his love. He proved his love for you and for me. You see, Christ didn't die, didn't just love the cool people or the famous people or the smart people, or those with power. God demonstrated or displayed his love in dying for it means in the Greek, in sake of, in behalf of, instead of. He died for the ungodly while I was still a sinner. So when did God start loving you? When you decided to come to Jesus? Oh, I guess I'll love you now. Or when you decided to put away your sinful ways or when you decided to get your act together and surrender your life to him and serve him? Is that when he said, okay, I guess I'll love you? No, he died when we were ungodly. He loves us. He proved his love while we were still a sinner. So these verses tell me this. Number one, I cannot boast that the reason that God loves me and saved me is because I'm so good and so sincere and so wonderful and I had my life together and I was doing my best and God saw that I had real potential. No. He died for me while I was still a sinner in an ungodly state. So I have no place to boast, second of all. When we were still without strength, he says without strength, verse 6. You didn't have any strength. As I get older, I am losing my strength, I notice. I can't run as far as I used to. I can't lift as much as I used to. I can't work as hard as I used to. It used to be that I thought I could go 24-7. Man, I tell you, I can't, I can't go the pace that I used to go because my strength is getting less and less as I get older and older. Here, he says, you are without strength. In other words, you didn't have any ability to save yourself. And then thirdly, verse 7, we just see how great God's love is, that a man will die perhaps for a good man, but Christ died for us when we were not good men and women. So the love of God is great. His grace is absolutely incredible. Christ died for me while I was still a sinner. When I was in an ungodly state, God loved me then. Listen, now does God love you less now that you are his child? No. So oftentimes, Christians, we can feel that way. God must be so disappointed with me, kind of just puts up with me, holds me out at arm's length, has a negative attitude towards me. 
And sometimes as a child of God, we imagine God thinking that way. And, and, and yet we need to understand that God demonstrated, displayed, proved his love for me. Christ did die for me while I was yet a sinner, ungodly. And now that I am his child, now that I believe in him, now that I have the spirit of adoption and I can cry out, Abba, Father, I know that his love remains and continues. And as we finish this morning, much more than, verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you recall that Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God should be revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, and we were all ungodly, but Christ died for us, so we shall be saved from receiving this wrath through Jesus Christ. Paul uses that phrase much more in verse 9, much more than having been justified. Christ died for us while we're yet sinners. How much more is he willing to save us from the wrath to come? And then in verse 10, Paul uses that phrase again much more. While still an enemy of God, I was reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. How much more having been reconciled, which means having that relationship now with the Father, how much more will Jesus establish this loving relationship between the Father and me? The separation that once existed between God and me no longer exists. So all the blessings that we have seen in chapter 5, the blessings of being justified, are, is because God demonstrated his love for us, his son's death on Calvary's cross. And when we really understand his love that was proven for us, that he loved us then, how it was proved and demonstrated, how much more his love and blessing is with you today. His love remains. And he loves you so much. He wants to do incredible work in you. For you to trust him and look to him. To enjoy him. To celebrate your salvation. To be at awe at our salvation and God's love for me. And you see, as we do, it's going to draw us close to him. And knowing that I can even glory in the tribulation that I go through because, Lord, you are doing a work in me that is exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think. So, Father, thank you. We thank you so much for these words that, Lord, we need to hear. We don't always understand how you're going to work, but we know that you are. We know that your word and promises are true. But, Lord, I just pray for us this morning. First of all, I want to pray if anyone's here in this building or listening to this message on social media or on you know, later on the radio, that we know that justification, being declared righteous, comes only through faith in Jesus. And if anyone is listening and you have not given your heart to Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness, the invitation has always come. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. You might think that, well, I'm a good person. You're not good enough. You might think that you're so bad that God could never forgive you. He died for all of your sins. 
And the invitation is always to come. To call upon the name of Jesus. To believe in him. Repent. Quit going in the direction you're going. And turn to Jesus. Because he loves you. He did the work on Calvary's cross. He cried out, it is finished. Put your faith in him. And trust. And ask for forgiveness. To turn to him and surrender your life and your heart to him. You can do that right where you are. Right where you're sitting. Today is the day of salvation. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you. And I thank you that you died for me while I was yet a sinner. Your love has been proven to me. And I now respond to that love. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. That you love me. Forgive me. I want this to be my gospel. I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I thank you for your love for me. And I want to know you and walk with you. I want to learn of you. And I thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name.